It's Wednesday, March 2nd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. We could be in store for a more brutal phase of fighting in the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We have seen some civilian targets be hit and deaths as a result, but all eyes are on this Russian convoy headed toward Kyiv. In the meantime, the isolation of Putin and his country continue as financial and social sanctions hamper the economy and keeps Russians from participating in world events. Dave Lawler, world editor at Axios, joins us for more. Next, the refugee crisis as a result of the Ukrainian invasion is shaping up to be a huge concern. Over 600,000 people have fled to nearby countries and the numbers are rising. The good news is that Europe is opening its doors when they had been more reluctant in situations past. Laura Jakes, diplomatic correspondent at the New York Times, joins us for how the U.S. and others are handling the influx of Ukrainians. Finally, with cases of COVID dropping and mask mandates going away, it does seem that we're moving to the next phase of the pandemic. But how many people have actually been infected with coronavirus? A new analysis of blood tests that reveal antibodies from infections estimates that 140 million people have come down with it. Dan Keating, health reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for this and how a majority of children have also been infected. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. My fear is, after hearing the intelligence, is that Vladimir Putin will become increasingly desperate, deranged, delusional. Joining us now is Dave Lawler, world editor at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Dave. Great to be with you. Well, let's keep talking about Ukraine and the invasion by Russia you know, a lot of worries are that this thing is going to be escalating pretty quickly. We're keeping tabs on this convoy of Russian forces. They say it's 40 miles long. The latest, I guess, is that it's kind of hit a snag, possibly. They're maybe regrouping before they continue all the way on their way to Kiev. But, you know, there's just a big worry that we're getting ready for this uh, a more brutal phase of fighting after uh, six, seven days so far of what's been going on here. So, Dave, help us walk through some of uh, the latest that we're seeing here. Yeah, so you mentioned this convoy. It had been getting steadily closer to Kiev over the last couple of days. We did hear from the Pentagon today that it was facing logistical issues. And so stuff like vehicles in the convoy were running out of fuel. There weren't enough supplies for the soldiers. So the Pentagon view was that that's the reason it didn't advance as much in the past 24 hours as it had previously. But obviously, this is a lot of military might and kind of a sign of what Russia can bring to bear on Ukrainian cities in the coming days. And the other thing that we've been seeing today is a more intense artillery, you know, bombing campaign from the Russians on Ukrainian cities. That is true in Kiev and also in Kharkiv in the east, uh, which is the second biggest city in Ukraine. And that's where we saw the central square of the city get bombed today. And the Ukrainians have called that a terrorist act. And it does seem like a sign that civilian areas are not off limits necessarily. I know the, the Russians were trying to target some of the information capabilities of the Ukrainians. So they uh, blasted this uh, main TV tower in Kiev. And I, I guess some uh, Ukrainian television stations were off air for a moment after that, but they're starting to target a lot more than just military installations. The Russians actually announced in advance today that they were going to be targeting what they said were facilities used for information warfare. And so one of those was apparently, as you mentioned, this TV tower in Kiev, but you did have some quite 
alarming images afterwards that showed that some civilians were indeed killed in that strike. And also a Holocaust memorial site, which is near to the tower, an area where the Nazis massacred tens of thousands of Jews during the Holocaust. That site was also hit in this strike. So again, the Ukrainians are grabbing every microphone they can to tell the world that the Russians say they're trying to hit military outposts. They say they're trying to wage this limited war. But in fact, what you're seeing are strikes that are hitting civilians, that are hitting residential areas, that are hitting, in this case, a Holocaust memorial. So again, the last 24 hours have, unfortunately, as you mentioned, seen more civilian casualties and more of that kind of bombardment. One of the interesting things you mentioned in your article, too, that there could be some you know, lagging Russian morale maybe amongst the troops who a lot of these people were maybe forced to enlist and uh, have never seen combat before. Yeah, and I think there's some relationship between that, what you just mentioned, the sagging morale, and the resolve that we have seen from the Ukrainian people and Ukrainian civilians, not just soldiers. I was watching images today from Ukrainian towns on the southern coast where actually the Russians have made some quite significant progress. They now hold some towns and cities there. But I saw in one town, civilians came out into the central square where the Russian forces were sort of massed in front of them and were just singing the Ukrainian national anthem and shouting at these troops who, who really looked like young boys. They were shouting at them to leave, basically. And my sense, and you can only tell so much from these kind of grainy images, was that the troops seemed kind of shell-shocked by this. Many of them, according to the Pentagon, did not know they were going to be invading Ukraine, have never seen Ukraine necessarily as an adversary. It's a neighbor, right? So they've been sent into this country to carry out quite a broad and ambitious and in some ways brutal military campaign. And so the view of the Ukrainian side, now the Ukrainians are trying to take advantage of that. They're offering soldiers around $50,000 to voluntarily hand themselves in to Ukrainian authorities and put down their weaponry. The Pentagon says we've seen some units give up their assets, their vehicles, without much of a fight. They didn't seem to have the will to stand and fight. And so there is some of that, but I don't want to necessarily underestimate the degree to which Russia still has a tremendous amount of force to bring to bear in Ukraine. And, you know, I don't think we should anticipate that the entire Russian military is going to lay down their arms. Dave Lawler, world editor at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Of course, we're going to take uh, refugees. This country's had a, uh, a historic and proud role in, uh, in taking refugees from uh, all conflicts. Joining us now is Lara Jakes, diplomatic correspondent at The New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Lara. Thanks for having me, Oscar. The world is tuned into what's going on in Ukraine right now as Russia continues its invasion. One of the things that we've been seeing, obviously, is a lot of people fleeing the country because, you know, they don't want to be in the uh, in the area where bombs are dropping, missiles are being shot and, you know, where all the fighting is taking place. We've heard a lot of estimates. We've heard anywhere from 400 to 500,000 people have fled Ukraine already. People have said maybe a million Ukrainians could be seeking some type of refugee status in other nearby countries just as, uh, you know, they try to wait for everything to pan out and, and finish. So, Lara, tell us a little bit more about what we're seeing with this refugee crisis here where, you know, a lot of these European countries, 
are very open to taking them in when they weren't very open with a lot of other people in the past. When all is said and done, it could bring as many as 4 million Ukrainians outside of their country looking for some kind of shelter or refuge from this invasion. And universally, people are welcoming these border countries' acceptance of the Ukrainian people. Refugees need to be taken care of. So while we are seeing that happen today with the Ukrainian refugees, that's not what happened in 2015, for example, when a mass of people from Syria, elsewhere in the Middle East, and even in Africa were trying to get some refuge in in Europe. And these countries basically closed the door on them. Yeah, and it's a very interesting situation where, you know, we're hearing from some of these other leaders of these other countries And uh, in particular, uh, I guess he was the chancellor of uh, Austria. He said, you know, this is more of a neighborhood thing, neighborhood help. You know, there are neighboring countries right here. That's why we're more willing to take them in right now. Right. So there are a couple of things at play here, and it's not for me to judge what is true and, and what is not. But it is absolutely the case that some geopolitical strategy is happening in the way that these Eastern European or byway countries that have in their history had to suffer some of the Soviet Union's invasions or atrocities that resulted in mass migrant or refugee crises. This is a way for them to push back on that policy that we're seeing now, that they have done this in the past. In 1956, there was a Hungarian refugee crisis. Austria took in very many of those people, tens if not hundreds of thousands of people, In Czechoslovakia, a similar uprising was crushed by the Soviet Union, which caused a refugee wave. And these countries have historically taken in refugees that were forced from their homes as a direct result of Russian or or Soviet atrocities. It is also true that the people, the Ukrainians who are being taken in by these countries now are white. They are Christian. They are European. Even some of these leaders say that they are more willing to take in people who are fellow Europeans than they are from other parts of the country. But we've seen over the last several years, and especially we saw it manifest in the 2015 crisis, a sense of xenophobia, a sense of otherism, a sense of nativism in countries that did not want to take in people who didn't look like them, who had different cultures. Some of the argument at that time was that this influx, um, and I think something like 1.3 million people sought asylum in Europe from the Middle East and Africa in 2015 and 2016. And, And yes, that stretched a lot of these European budgets. These were people who needed shelter, food, education, health care, and not all these countries were able to provide that. And it created this backlash of nativism in some of these countries. What is the Biden administration doing on this front? Well, the Biden administration thinks that this is a crisis that will be mostly limited to Europe's borders. And the deputy high commissioner for refugee for the United Nations, Kelly Clements, I interviewed her today, she said it was so localized at this point that most of the Ukrainians are trying to stay close to their border, that even if they come into Poland and Moldova, that they want to stay close to the border so that they can go back into Ukraine and go back to their homes as soon as they're able to. That's going to depend largely on how long the fighting lasts or whether their homes exist So at the time that the fighting is over. But at this point, the Biden administration is sending tens of millions of dollars in humanitarian aid to 
refugee agencies to the UN, to other relief organizations and NGOs, but they are not at this point going to create any kind of separate channel to allow Ukrainians into the United States, much in the way that was created for something like 75,000 Afghans who were taken in by the United States after Kabul fell for the Taliban in August. They're considering creating a special pathway to temporary permanent residency in the United States for Ukrainians who may already be here, but whose visas might run out in a matter of months. These could be students, these could be workers, these could even be tourists or relatives who are in the United States visiting. And certainly there's a discussion that these people should not be sent back to a war zone, even if their visas expire. And so there may be a pathway to let them stay and not be deported. Laura Jakes, diplomatic correspondent at New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That idea of herd immunity, they're not even talking about that anymore because COVID's ability to do reinfections for people who've had an infection or breakthrough infections for people who've had vaccines have really kind of made herd immunity not very relevant. Joining us now is Dan Keating, health reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Dan. Oh, glad to be here. Well, we're seeing uh, cases going down with coronavirus. Mask mandates are going away in a large part of the country now. The last holdouts of states are starting to do away with those. It really seems like we're starting to get onto this next phase of the pandemic, getting to this endemic side where we're just kind of living with it. But, you know, there's the big overarching question, you know, how many people have contacted COVID? And the new analysis of blood tests by the CDC says 140 million people. That's a higher number than some of the estimates we had been seeing around going around already. So, Dan, tell us about what this analysis looked into and we'll get into uh, what they found out. So this analysis that was just released on Monday is part of what's called their sero prevalence surveillance. So seroprevalence refers to how prevalent or how frequent antibodies are in people's systems. So this is not based on getting tested for COVID or knowing you had COVID or states reporting COVID cases. This is just 72,000 samples of blood that was collected for reasons other than COVID. So someone went for a medical checkup or they were getting medical care done for them, whatever reason blood was drawn. The CDC contracts with those big blood laboratory companies in the country. And when they do the regular blood testing, they also will do an antibody test and then hand the results over to CDC. Not with the person's identifying information, but it just has like age and state. So then the CDC can figure out just from this big sample uh, about how, what proportion of people in the country have had COVID. So what this means is you had enough COVID that your bloodstream has antibodies. So it doesn't mean that you were just exposed and maybe got it in your nose, but never caught it. It means your body developed an immunological response and it's in your bloodstream. But it doesn't mean this test is only for presence. So it doesn't measure like how many antibodies are in your bloodstream. So it's not saying, oh, you are protected or not. It's just saying you've had COVID at some time. And it does not include people who are vaccinated. So it means you actually have the natural antibodies, not the vaccine antibodies. And that's, you know, really interesting when we start talking about things like herd immunity and and whatnot. Obviously, early on when vaccines were starting to roll out, they said they wanted to get about 75 percent of people vaccinated. 
so we can get to that herd immunity number. Obviously, that we didn't reach those numbers, but that coupled with people getting natural immunity, are we seeing more protection out there? In this study only looks at natural in- immune antibodies. There's a separate study that looked at it whether you had either natural immunity antibodies or vaccine antibodies. That study, as of November, found that over 90% of adults had reinfections. Big wave of COVID was last year around December, January. And then six months later is when the giant Delta wave appeared. And then six months later is when the giant Omicron wave appeared. So it turns out that having had one of those infections in winter of 2021 didn't really prevent you from getting COVID or the previous ones didn't really help you when Omicron came. And unfortunately, even vaccines, especially if the vaccine or the booster was more than five or six months ago, offers less protection than a fresh one does. So that idea of herd immunity, they're not even talking about that anymore because COVID's ability to do reinfections for people who've had an infection or breakthrough infections for people who've had vaccines have really kind of made herd immunity not very relevant. One of the other things that we saw throughout this study is that children, the majority of children have had COVID also. And, you know, when we're talking about things like school policies and max mandates and all that stuff, a lot of kids have already come down with it. Yes, that was definitely one of the most interesting things that I saw in this new data. With Omicron and so many additional cases in Omicron, now the data estimates that 58% of children in this country have had it. And interestingly, they actually break it out two ways, age 0 to 11, they were 58%, and age 12 to 17, they were 58%. So it's not like it's just older kids have it or just younger. Pretty consistently through the kid age groups, the vast majority, well, 58 is a, is a majority. I don't know if it's a vast majority, but a majority of the kids have had COVID. And there's a few. And then in young adults or youngish adults from 18 to 49, they are just under a majority. They were, uh, I think, 48% have had it. So what the pattern shows is that a lot of the efforts to prevent getting COVID were focused on the older people that are most vulnerable to getting very sick and dying. And so they have a much lower infection rate because there's been more vaccination, more social distancing, and quite frankly, because a lot of the older people are more frightened, more mask wearing and things. But as you get younger, you get people that are either working jobs where they don't have a choice of social distancing or going to school and lower vaccination rates for younger adults and for kids. So between all that, the kids have had a much higher infection rate. And while there have been deaths among children, and that is very tragic, the death rate for children is much, much, much lower than it is for people, say, age 75 and older, who are the majority of the people who've died from COVID. So uh, most of the kids who get it do not have that serious of a case. And that's why 58% of kids can have had it. And yet it's not considered, you know, mostly a disease for young people. Dan Keating, health reporter at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.